0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. And this week on The Stacks, we're doing something a little different. In light of the recent wave of book bannings all across America, I felt it was really important to spotlight what's going on. I have been really upset over everything I'm reading and hearing about, and so I wanted to take the time to address it on the podcast. Every single day this week, Monday through Friday, I'm talking to different people impacted by book bannings. My guests will range from educators and students to booksellers, politicians, and authors. Things have been moving really quickly in the book banning arena, and in an effort to be timely with our coverage of book bannings, we put together this whole mini-series in about a week. These five days of coverage is not comprehensive, but instead a way to highlight more voices and to remind us all what is at stake. Throughout the week, you'll also hear from some of my favorite authors and thinkers about their favorite banned books. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. I also want to say, if you like what you hear, if you appreciate the work that I'm doing to create The Stacks every single week, please join The Stacks Pack on Patreon. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast. So without the support of listeners like you, there really is no show. You will get perks like our virtual book club and bonus episodes. And also you'll get to rest easy knowing your contribution makes The Stacks possible. So to join us, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks. All right, now let's get to today's episode all about the banning of books. All right, everyone, I'm so honored. I'm speaking today with Senator Ghazala Hashmi, who serves in the Virginia General Assembly, representing the 10th Senatorial District, which includes parts of Richmond City, Chesterfield County, and Poeton County. She sits on the following Senate committees, education and health, agriculture, conservation and natural resources, general laws and technology, and local government. Senator Hashmi also chairs the Senate Subcommittee on Public Education. Senator, welcome to the stacks.
1: Thank you, Tracy. I'm honored to be here.
0: i'm I'm so thrilled to have you. This is just such an honor and such a treat. Unfortunately, the circumstances are around banned books, which, you know, is not ideal. Um, I sort of want to just get your sense of generally, I mean, you're on the education committee, you're you're in this stuff. Why do you think there's such an uptick of book banning going on across the country right now?
1: We are certainly seeing a lot of proposed legislation around uh, banning books and banning uh, certain content here in our Virginia schools. And you're absolutely right. There's been an uptick across the country and Virginia has not been spared either. This has caught some of us a little bit by surprise because we thought some of these culture wars had been uh, decided and (laughs) sealed uh, for the time being, but uh, they seem to have come back with quite uh, a rage. And I think a lot of what we are seeing is manufactured outrage uh, at the convenience of certain political uh, ideologues who want to spread a message. And they know that a a good place to start is with our local schools and with our school districts and the vulnerability that is around our school systems and our librarians and our teachers. And so this has become a popular place for indignation for certain folks, and they have targeted A very very vulnerable um, population in that sense, and have leveled outrage uh, at our at our schools in particular. And so, banning books has become quite the topic here in Virginia too.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's a topic so many places. What do you feel like is at stake right now? What do you feel like, you know, bigger picture that we're we're gearing up for perhaps, or just what what we're losing by, you know, removing books from schools.
1: Well, we have seen these kinds of conversations in American society uh, over the decades, and it's always around issues that uh, fuel cultural changes and So when we see cultural changes, whether they are around democratic values or around our our priorities in education. Uh, around issues of uh, racial justice, uh, issues around social justice, then we have that same conversation become initiated again, an attempt to suppress uh, information an attempt to misinform the public. And certainly an attempt to ban ideas that may cause people to think a little bit more mm. about the society <laughs> that they live in. And so that's the sort of concerns that we are seeing. And this is a, uh, The books that are traditionally highlighted, if we take a look at those, are invariably around uh, issues of Black authors or LGBTQ authors or Jewish authors who are really asking us to think deeply about uh, the the ways in which racism, anti-Semitism, white supremacy have played out. And some people don't want to be challenged uh, in in those areas. And so suppressing knowledge, suppressing information is an easier path for them.
0: Right. Okay. I don't this might be a really basic question, but you are a politician, so I'm going to rely on you for this one. Is this even legal? Can the government actually tell citizens what they can and cannot read? especially in these publicly funded areas like schools public school libraries and public libraries in general isn't that why we have a first amendment
1: and that strikes at the heart of first the first amendment you're absolutely right uh, a lot of times the the language of the first amendment gets tossed around so right. for instance when Twitter takes away the account of certain politicians. They're accused of violating First Amendment rights, but that's absolutely an incorrect application of the First Amendment. The First Amendment in our Constitution is quite clear, and it's that the government shall not step in and suppress free speech for the public, that the government has a fundamental responsibility to protect free speech. And so anytime we see books being taken out of circulation in a public context in this way, whether it's public schools, public libraries, that is a suppression of First Amendment rights, the essential First Amendment rights of a a population to be able to access information. Now, of course, with public schools, uh, we have a responsibility to make sure that there are age-appropriate materials available to our students. And I fundamentally trust our school, public school librarians, our teachers to make those wise decisions. And so when we see calls to ban books and materials from our school systems, we're really seeing people who are saying that they don't trust our educators. Right. Uh, they don't trust them to, to be making the right Professional decisions for the children in their care.
0: Right. I mean, I think I I keep hearing people say this phrase of curation versus censorship, right? And that, you know, these teachers and these librarians, their job is to curate collections that are right for their students for the appropriate age group, not to censor or take things away, but just to make sure that the appropriate materials are being presented to the children at the appropriate age, right? You're not going to share you know, a book about tying your shoes with an 18-year-old, just like you're not going to share a book about, you know, your period with a five-year-old. Like, you know, it's just not, it's just not the appropriate time for that thing. So I think that that's really important to think about is, you know, the teachers and the librarians they are trained to curate collections and to present materials to students when they when they feel that it's the right time and the right the right work but the thing that you just mentioned about not trusting about people sort of saying like this is an indirect way of saying we don't trust our educators we have to talk about governor yunkin's tip line because that is that same thing that's saying uh, for people who don't know, I guess maybe you can explain a little bit what's going on in Virginia. Um, but my question is sort of, you know, isn't isn't that what he's saying with this tip line is like, we don't trust the people in the classroom. We don't trust the educators.
1: That is probably one of the most appalling um, uh, edicts, and I have to call it an edict, that has come out of the first few days of this new governor. So you're right, Virginia has just uh, inaugurated a new governor this past uh, January, and he's about three weeks into his new administration. And one of the first acts of his administration was to create a tip line and to encourage uh, the public Uh, to call and leave tips uh, about the teachers in their children's classroom and about what is being discussed or the materials that they might find objectionable. When I first saw that, I I was, first of all, so deeply offended. But secondly, anyone with knowledge of history understands what a uh, perilous road this is when we start to ask our parents and students themselves to inform about, to inform the government, no less, uh, about uh, materials and discussions in the classroom. This is something that every authoritarian government has established. And the very first step of fascism, and I'm going to use that word Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of history, very first steps of fascism is to undermine the education system, to undermine the trust in teachers, and to also then begin to systematically remove materials, conversations, discussions around issues that the government itself might find offensive. Yeah. And so this this particular tip line is uh, uh, frankly horrific on many levels. Yeah. And anyone who has studied history ought to be appalled, first of all, that it's uh, being done in the Capitol through the Virginia state government, or that it's happening anywhere in our country. One thing I've been happy to see is the kind of public response to this ridiculous tip line. Uh, Young people in particular Mm -hmm. have used their creativity and their technology knowledge to hack the system (laughs) and to flood it with uh, spam emails and comments and other members of the public have used it as a way to share how much they uh, really love their teachers. What a wonderful job their uh, classrooms and their schools are providing to their children and to share uh, support and trust uh, for our education system. And I hope the governor takes heed to the fact that uh, what he has done is is a fundamental challenge to the basis of democracy and that he listens to the public who have been outspoken in asking for the removal of this tip line. Uh, Every teacher, parent organization has also signed on to a letter renouncing this uh, effort and asking the the Youngkin administration to to take it down. Are you
0: aware of any people who support this tip line? Like is I know that, you know, obviously there's many sides to many of these issues and different nuanced things. But is there a push within Virginia of people who voted for Youngkin who are, you know, thrilled by this? Or is this generally being met with resistance?
1: I think the overwhelming uh, response has been resistance and just uh, shock and outrage. But you're right. You know, Youngkin ran on on a campaign that catered to the Trump base and deliberately so. He ran on a campaign that fed uh, mythologies of so-called critical race theory being taught in school, right. um, mythologies that uh, somehow uh, children were being asked to define themselves on racial terms and do it in a very negative way, one one against the other. Um, so there was a very, very deliberate effort to call out the base on these measures. Um, and, and so there may be a few folks who support this so-called tip line, but the overwhelming response that I've seen from my constituents and from people across Virginia is the idea that it's absolutely repellent mm. to the fundamental ideals that we all hold in terms of uh, democratic values in, in this country.
0: Is it legal? Is Is what he's doing, is this even a legal thing? Is there like, will is there a way to have repercussions based off that? Like, I just don't, I don't know, maybe I'm naive. I just don't get the point aside from like making teachers scared. Is there a real, what's, what's the end game here? You know, what, what, if you're tipped out, if someone, you know, says you're being divisive and they call the tip line and then, What does Yunkin do then? Does he send the police in? Like, I just I don't know. I just don't
1: get it. We don't get it either. Yes, Uh, (laughs) it is. It is. It's a thought police coming in to monitor what uh, is happening in the classroom. There's no clarity, certainly, around what would be done with the tips. But one other aspect um, recently that just developed, I believe it was yesterday, is that The public uh, has uh, asked for a a release of the emails, the tips Mm. that have come in, and the Yunkin administration has refused to do so. But that is illegal because uh, it is a matter of public access, that we have rules of FOIA. And if the public wants to see the communications, they absolutely have a right to those communications. And so I know it will be challenged in the court system that these so-called tips are, are going uh, must be made public.
0: Do you see that the book bans will also be challenged legally in the court system? Is that is that sort of where you see some of this going? Or is that different?
1: I would hope so if they become egregious that uh, they are challenged. But one thing we've been able to do as far as our legislature is concerned, we did have one bill in the Senate that was focused on giving parents the authority to review every material that came through the public school libraries and then to potentially ban those materials. The patron who brought that legislation to us focused on books by Black authors, such as Toni Morrison and Ernest Gaines, focused on graphic novels by LGBTQ writers. And then he, he also had the audacity to say he would not challenge a book like Lolita, uh, because that is a work of art. Of course. Obviously, he hasn't read Lolita, which is about... Uh, an adult uh, teacher who explicitly grooms and then seduces his own uh, stepdaughter, 13-year-old stepdaughter. So there's always a focus on black writers, on marginalized writers, uh, people from the LGBTQ community. So that piece of legislation met quite a resistance from our uh, librarians, the organizations, from parent-teacher associations. And so we were able to not pass the bill. It 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 died in the Senate. I'm sure we're going to see things from the other chamber um, that are equally egregious, and I hope we will be able to dispatch them as well uh, in the same manner.
0: I hope so, too. I really do. Uh, I just have two more questions for you. What can people do to fight against these book bans? What, what advice do you have for everyday citizens, parents and not parents. Um, I know a lot of people who are really upset by these book bannings are not parents of, of young people. Or if they are parents, maybe their children are older or, you know, maybe their parent or maybe their children have passed or whatever it looks like. But, you know, people are upset who are not parenting. So I want to know what what can they be doing to stay involved in what's going on?
1: I think uh, everybody needs to be quite outspoken on this issue because uh, there's a small distance between censoring, banning, and burning. Mm. And uh, as we talk about censoring books, which may not seem as challenging as the next steps of banning and burning, there's swift progression through each of those stages. And it's a poor society indeed that allows any kind of book burning to take place. Uh, It's a reflection of the, the kind of fear, hate mongering, and ignorance that is has no place in a in a democratic society, and we're seeing uh, book burnings taking place. Right, we saw <laughs> saw one just this week in Tennessee, and I think everybody has a responsibility to speak out and to uh, really really challenge individuals who want to put this kind of uh, dampening force on our on our ability to access uh, uh, information and 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 to use. The power of literacy. Uh, every, there's groups to join, there are uh, organizations to support. Our American Library Association has taken this on as a very important cause. They have been leaders and champions in this area. Uh, ACLU has fought uh, in many different localities, and uh, we also need to elect people who represent the values that understand what it means to suppress knowledge in this way. And and in each of these areas, we have a responsibility. You can't sit on the sideline on issues like this. proliferates and it assumes a power of its own. And, and we, we have seen it in history and we've had uh, warnings of what can take place uh, when we allow uh, such things to progress. And so I would encourage everybody to play a role and speak out. It doesn't matter if you have children or not, uh, this affects all of us and, and uh, there's a fundamental responsibility to, to respond to it.
0: Right. Thank you so much for that. Here's my last question for you. What is your favorite band book? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I have to, Well, I have to say I'm a professor of American literature, too. That's where I spent uh, my 30-odd years uh, in professional life before uh, moving into politics. So I have so many favorite <laughs> uh, band books. It's my f- favorite things to, to teach, actually. Um, uh, probably Toni Morrison's uh, novels are, are among my favorite. Uh, Beloved, certainly. I've taught many, many times to classrooms of students who, you know, it literally takes their breath away, the power of her writing, the complexity of the experience. And that's what we need to expose uh, students to, challenge them out of their comfort and enable them to understand uh, the context of the worlds that we live in. And every great writer uh, will situate novels like that within the context of a universal experience.
0: Yeah. Oh, Beloved is such a fantastic book. We've dedicated an entire episode of the podcast to it a few years ago. It's just fantastic. Um, well, Senator, thank you so much for your time. I know you all are in session. I know it's a weekend. I just really honored that you took the time to chat with me today. Thank you.
1: My absolute pleasure. It's wonderful to speak with you, Tracy.
0: That was Virginia State Senator Ghazala Hashmi. After this quick break, we'll be back for a conversation on censorship versus curation with Hannah Oliver-Depp, the owner of Loyalty Bookstores in Washington, D.C. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. All right, everybody, I'm very excited to bring you Hannah Oliver Depp. Hannah is the owner of Loyalty Bookstores in Washington, D.C. and Maryland. Loyalty is dedicated to diverse and intersectional literature programs and gifts for all ages. Oliver Depp has served on multiple American Bookseller Association committees and is currently on the boards of Bookshop.org and the New Atlantic Independent Booksellers Association. There's a lot of words. Hannah, welcome to I The know Stacks.
2: <laughs> Hi, I'm so happy
0: to talk to you, Tracy. I'm so happy. I wish we were talking about something more fun than banned books, but alas, this is what always what we're talking about. Yep. I reached out to you, I emailed you and I was like, please come talk to me about banned books. And your response was, you were like, this is weighing heavy on me. Um, and I'm curious yes. sort of what is specifically weighing heavy on you, if you can sort of pinpoint what it is that's like making you upset about banned books besides generally banned books
2: <laughs> besides banned books being a thing still i got to say i i think there's a direct responsibility that independent bookstores have to raise awareness about banned books and to fight it as best we can because of this weird space that we occupy we are not libraries we are either for-profit businesses or maybe we're cooperatives you know there's a lot of different business models but we call ourselves community gathering spaces and we call ourselves hubs and we call ourselves the place between work and home. Or, you know, we occupy a space that isn't quite pure retail. And we often talk about it as like, this is why independent bookstores matter. This is why independent bookstores are different from other businesses. And this is the time that we should be stepping up to the plate and saying, yes, like this is why we are here. And I think what we have done instead not in some sort of intentional F band books, or we don't genuinely care about this, but because running a small business is extremely hard all the time and Mm -hmm. it's very hard in a pandemic. Mm -hmm, (laughs)
1: mm -hmm.
2: But we have sort of left it to be this thing we talk about once a week in September or maybe during back to school time with band books week. And it sometimes has become a little cutesy as opposed to the very, very urgent, incredibly devastating issue that it really is. And, you know, we've sort of allowed it to be commoditized. Like, I love my banned book socks. Do not get me wrong. <laughs> but like, there's the idea that this is something that's happening in memory and not that this is something that's been on the rise in my lifetime and that this has become a more present and present issue. And the fact that when people want to talk about banned books, they talk about Catcher in the Rye and they don't talk about the fact that their books being published right now. Right. And there's, there's books on my shelf that I am placing, you know, front list new release orders for the paperback version where the hardcover has already been banned. And, you know, there are bookstores all across the country where in our neighborhood down the street, the school is banning the book. And it's my responsibility as a bookseller to stay aware of what that is and be aware of what kids are walking into my store, like what they might be experiencing at school, be aware that there's going to be all sorts of opinions on the issue like in my own neighborhood and people want to put this on certain regions of the United States and pretend like it's not happening in their own backyard and you know if we are community spaces the way that independent bookstores claim to be then we need to be aware of what's happening in our own community
0: right I think it's one of the things that you said that really speaks to me is this idea of like ban book week is this specific week as decided by the American Library Association, and I, I mean, even in putting this week together for the podcast, I was like, should I just wait and talk about this later? And then I was like, you yes. know what? Like, they don't own ban book ban banning of books. They don't own the conversation around right. that. And like, it's just one of those yeah. things that I think a lot of people are feeling like, oh, it's overwhelming to think about this. And, and so I decided, let me make Hana come talk to me about it because no one else wants to. <laughs> um, I'm curious if you've seen like in being on the ground in a space that is so connected with books, have you seen people reacting to what's going on in the last few months? Like have you had, have there been conversations around that in your bookstore? I think you guys have a table, right? That's like, hey, everyone who comes yeah. in here, these books are being banned. Has that sparked anything with yeah. your customers yeah
2: yeah I mean one of the most interesting things we have uh, a conversation again is that people walk in and they go oh I bet this being banned in Alabama and you're like actually it's being banned in Maryland 40 minutes away from where we are standing you know it, having those conversations is because you're you know everyone brings so much through the door of your store right? Right, right, uh, right their own life experiences their education you know what kind of news they're reading And there's just a lot of assumptions. We're based in Washington, D.C. and in Maryland. You know, in the DMV area, there's a lot of, like, armchair liberalism, just, like, very comfortable, you know, everything's fine in my neck of the woods vibes. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course. I'm in L.A., so I get it. (laughs) Yeah, and I I should especially clarify if you are white. Yeah. You know, and we we are in gentrified neighborhoods, uh, loyalty is. It's actually a somewhat intentional move on our part. Um, And so... You know, we have the black and brown community, immigrant communities, queer communities who are like feeling this breathing down our necks. And then you also have some really engaged allies. But the kind of general idea is that this isn't so much of a problem. And now that it's in the news a little bit more, although not as much as it should be, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, people are coming in and they're like, is this really happening? And and we get to have maybe a more detailed conversation about it than they would maybe get on Twitter. Um, we get to get into some nuances. We get to talk about the difference between curation and banning, the difference between violating someone's freedom of speech, and the difference between, like, a for-profit business not giving somebody a platform. <clears right. <clears <throat> um,
1: right. <laughs> right, right,
2: right. And that you know what the difference is between banning something from a public institution versus a private institution choosing not to host an author or shelve an author's books and. Um, You know, those are nuanced conversations that are difficult to have on social media or in news media even. And so it it is, I feel really privileged to be able to have those conversations. They are also exhausting. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, as much as I'm feeling this, we had George M. Johnson in uh, connection with the MLK library um, here in DC just this fall. And yeah. to discuss you know, their, their latest book, they're the author of uh, the book that they have that's being challenged all over the country, and they're literally going to court and, and you know, challenging these spams or in some cases answering lawsuits that have been levied against them, which is a crazy thing to think about having yeah. you as an author. Yeah. You know, And they are um, a, a queer, uh, non-binary author. They are Black. Their books are nonfiction, young adult titles that schools desperately need to be reading. And having a chance to, much like in a bookstore, have a nuanced conversation in the classroom. And that is what people are depriving everyone of. It's not book sales for the author, although that is important. It's not, you know, one of these giant conglomerations of publishers. It is kids not getting to have a conversation in a safe and space of education And instead having to go out and figure things out on TikTok, which like can be great, but it's probably, again, not going to be nuanced or necessarily. Right. (laughs) Right. And it's
0: also I mean, I think to the point of George M. Johnson's books, which I think have been on almost every list I've seen in the last few months, is that they're a new author and it's not Mao's. And it's not Fun Home and it's not Toni Morrison. This is someone who's Mm -hmm. writing right now to young people right now. Um, And, you know, of course, love the classics. Big Toni Morrison fan over here. But there's something to be said about authors who are writing to young people right this minute, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and that they're taking into account technology and experiences that are much more similar than Beloved, you know, like. And again, love, beloved, big fan, you know, but it's like it's doing sort of a double disservice to young people to not only not have the content that they're writing about, but also to not have the connection to the modern, modern literature, contemporary literature.
2: On the note of contemporary, you know, if you look at the list, it's stamped the remix, you know, it which is our history in America told two young people and four young people, yeah. you know, it's George, um, which is not what we would like to call that book anymore. But, right. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it's things that are happening right now. And it's contemporary authors. And I really, that is the thing that I want to drive home as an independent bookstore, that this is not, it, it would be very alarming. And it still is alarming when people try to ban Beloved, or, you know, I, I'm not a, Catcher in the right ban. Me neither. <laughs> I think we should but also let's get not book, ban Update it. our book list. But I still <laughs> don't think we need to ban it. Right. Like update the book list. Don't ban the book. Yeah, um, yeah. But it is happening now. It is happening about books that are addressing our specific crises now. And that is truly what is freaking people out.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, and I know Roxanne Gay wrote about this, but the difference between censorship and curation. Can you yeah. kind of give people like a mini, mini crash course on that? Because I think that's so important.
2: It is. a It's a thing that we are constantly dealing with and reckoning with in the American Booksellers Association, which is our, our national trade organization, as well as the uh, I am the president of NABA, which was the the easy way of saying the very long regional trade association. I didn't you think earlier. people would know that name was would New know. Atlantic why, Independent why, Booksellers exactly. Association. <laughs> like, it's, it's, um, this is a constant conversation we have because we have a responsibility to represent our communities, but also push our communities. We have a responsibility to protect our employees as their employers um, and to create community. And so every store has a different way of approaching this. But one thing they must do is reckon with it. And so what is curation versus literally silencing a voice as a public institution? Uh, We are privately run businesses or collectively run businesses if you're something like a co-op. And so it's different than a public institution like a library or a school banning and removing access to something as opposed to, I simply don't put this on display. (laughs) Um, And so we have curation standards, both for quality of literature, for representation across our shelves. And we are a mission-based bookstore. We have a statement of purpose. And so the books on our shelves, as best as we can, not having read every single book cover to cover, but as best as we can, we try to make the books match that curative standard that matches our statement of purpose. And this can mean things that are sometimes like uh, heartbreaking for me personally. You know, Chimamande Ngoce is someone whose book really touched me, um, their first book in particular. And yet they have repeatedly doubled down on things that are harmful to people in my community um, with anti-trans rhetoric um, and turf rhetoric. And so I do not shelve their books. And if a customer comes in and they say, I want to order one, we inform them why we don't stock them. And we will place an order. That's mm. the line that we have chosen. We've said, like, let me inform you of this. No, like, just so you know, this is why it's not here. You can get it from another bookstore. We can place an order for you, but just so you know, we don't traditionally carry this book. Mm. Um, and that again allows us to have the hard conversation. And that is that is the choice that I have made that I want to have that hard conversation um, because also I I actually the hard conversation is maybe not even the right way of phrasing it because. It's why I exist. It's mm. why my store exists. It's having the conversation, I should say. And other folks have decided to not carry it at all and never order it. Everyone is allowed to come up with their own curated standard because we are private businesses. Right. Whereas if the library takes a book off the shelf, they're denying access with something that is purchased with government funds and taxpayer money. Right. Um, they are there as a public institution, their statement of purpose is different than mine. Right, right. And it is very different. And a private institution is platforming authors with what we choose to do versus, you know, my store exists to counterbalance the general rhetoric of publishing. I say these books do sell. People of color, immigrant communities, queer communities, we read Right. Um we purchase books. We have buying power. You need to pay attention to us as a market and give us actual representation as a buying market. So I'm thinking about those people first and foremost and countering a very stupid narrative within right. publishing right. that that we are not a financially viable market. And so that is a very different statement of purpose than access to information mm. that a school and a public library is supposed to grant.
0: Right. Okay, I should have looked this up, and I should actually just know this, but what year did the first Loyalty Bookstore open?
2: Um, we started out as a pop-up in 2018 in conjunction with a bookstore called Upshur Street Books, and then Upshur Street Books actually closed at the end of 2018, and we took over their space on Upshur Street in Petworth, Washington, D.C., Got it. Um, rebranded it as Loyalty Books, and reopened in February of 2019. Got it. And Got it. then... Yeah, so we our first location was 2019 and our second location in downtown Silver Spring opened in 2020, also in February. I have great timing. Got it. Black History um, Month. Hello. <laughs> black, black History Month. <laughs> oh, a couple weeks before a global pandemic. Yeah. You are um, Black History. Thank you. Yeah. We are Black History. So yes, yeah, so we we are uh, you know, three years old in, in concept. Um yeah.
0: Okay, we're we're about the same age. The podcast is about the same age as mm-hmm. as you. But I was just thinking that what you were saying about like what your mission is. Because you're a real adult and have your shit together, you have a mission. I don't have one here at the Stacks, but essentially oh, the whole lie. mission <laughs> of this the whole well, I don't have one like written down. Um, the whole mission of the show is basically what you said, which is like to remind the world and publishing and everyone that our books are important and that black literature, queer literature, disabled literature immigrant literature, whatever it is, that is worthy of the kind of discussion that people give to our favorite book, Catcher in the Rye. (laughs) Before I let you out of here, I want to ask you two more questions. One is, what can folks do who are feeling the stress of this? And how can they get involved? Who's organizing? Where can they send their money or their energies or whatever it looks like?
2: you know, one of the things that I've seen that's very exciting is mutual aid organizations getting involved in this. And so if you are lucky enough to, to have one, and you probably do, even if you don't know it off the top of your head, look to see if your mutual aid organization is giving out books. Um, and if you can donate to that cause. Um, likewise, there's there's often a not-for-profit in your area, um, which is obviously a bit different, but, but often purchasing books. We've had a lot of people reaching out to us as a Black owned an independent bookstore saying like we want to purchase 20 copies of beloved we want to purchase 20 copies of all boys are blue you know to donate to various groups handing out books to kids since they're being deprived of this at their public school and that is incredible so if, if you have funds or time get involved in, in those in those plans also you know <sighs> how many times have we said like call and write your local representatives, right. Right, but you, right, right. you really need to, you need to, it seems stupid. There's there, you know, like, oh, they're not going to listen to me. It's about the volume. Yeah. Um, it is, it's about the volume. It's about overwhelming the phone lines, overwhelming their email inboxes, overwhelming their physical mailboxes. You need to be out there on the lines about all of these issues. Um, because federal government matters so much, but nothing matters more than state and local government as to the impact of your daily life. And this is happening at school boards across the country. And it's an organized effort by far-right extremists to remove information from our children's lives. Yeah, And so the only way to counter that is movement, organized movement. And these are people who have been given misinformation and told to spread misinformation and are actors with an agenda, bad actors. I don't mean hired actors (laughs) (laughs) coming in and they're people who have never been involved in anything before. And again, I kind of go back to that armchair everything's fine in my neck of the woods attitude. If it's not, and we can't just sit there and be like cooler heads will prevail. They're Mm. not going to. And if you still need that lesson taught to you after the last few years, I don't really know, man. But, you know, people really want to kind of solve this on a donation level or or a let me just go out and buy 70 copies of, of Mouse, which is awesome. The book's incredible. But, what's actually going to change is making sure that there is a plan by your school board for what happens when someone tries to challenge or ban a book. Right. Make sure you know what that plan is and make sure that you, if there's not one, or you think that it's not a good one, that you get informed, get involved, and make sure that you're staying on top of what the response from your local government is when someone tries to remove something from the library or from a school
0: and someone told me um, I think it was one of my listeners uh, tibby, who is very active uh, in in local government and, and and organizing and things and she was saying that one of the other things that people the reason that people need to speak up especially like about specific titles and specific books is that because it's an organized effort. They're getting Mm -hmm. a ton of people saying, ban this, ban this, ban this, but nobody coming on the other side and saying, no, we love this book. And it actually helps a lot if you're calling into the school board and saying, Mouse is my favorite book ever written, you know, or whatever the Mm -hmm. book is or whatever the books are. And, you know, actually speaking uh, positively towards the book. So that's like a yes, very little absolutely. thing that you can do if something's already being challenged is like organize the people in your community and your kids classroom, the other parents just to call and say, no, 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 we yeah. love, we love Tony Morrison. Keep it, keep it, keep it. Um,
2: yeah, absolutely. And I, I do think that it's a, it is a really big deal to say, we love x y and z book but it is especially important when it is a new author because they're the mm-hmm. easiest there's a reason they're targeting so many of this you target beloved and it's it's national we, news we saw what happened in virginia yeah, it's yeah. national news but you target newer authors even when it's jason reynolds yeah. a lot of people you know if you're in the book world you're like yeah we all know jason reynolds but right, if you're but if you not parent, people don't. Yeah, absolutely yeah, and totally. so it's, there's a reason in addition to the the fear it's also easier to get a newer book banned, and so you really, really need to chime up. And if you notice, these are queer and trans authors getting banned right, right and left, authors of colors, disabled authors. You know, these are the voices they are going after. That is not an accident. Right. And those are often the voices. Like you, maybe didn't have that book when you were in school, so it's even more important to become like informed about. You know, what is this book actually about, and mm-hmm. and. How can I support it?
0: Yeah. Okay, last one. What's your favorite band book?
2: Oh my God, what a terrible question. Um, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me this question. I was like, I should be prepared. Of course you wasn't. should. Of course uh, I was going to ask. Yes, I will say out of the like recent, recent pile of them, and and mostly because it's had the most effect in my own conversations in my own life, but Stamped, the remix, um, mm-hmm. which is Dr. Abram Kendi's, stamped uh which is a massive incredible historical text as told to young people by jason reynolds i have given that to so many adults in my life mm-hmm. who are like scared of the giant tome mm-hmm. that is stamped and and find the conversational tone uh, of Stamped the remix so so comforting and then that's allowed us to move on to the next thing and have the bigger conversation yeah and it is such a reworking of the narrative of american exceptionalism and that we just magically you know became this you know top financial institution and ignoring the fact that we did so on the free labor of, of of forced labor from black and brown bodies and 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 then how that reverberates through pop culture and and literally every aspect of our lives it is a literal you know relearning of of american history and tying all of the parts of American history together, as opposed to leaving out very important chunks of it. And I just loved that book so much. And I've loved giving it to people, young people, older people. And everyone has come back and been like, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, When they've read it, and you know, that, like, as a book person, that's all you want. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yes. That's
0: a dream, that's the gold star for that's book the dream lovers. that's yeah.
2: the gold star, yeah, yeah, absolutely that that has been such an impactful book in my in my life in the last i guess two years now since it came out yeah um so so from the current list of of things that are so challenged, that has been such a game changer.
0: Thank you so much, Hannah. You're the best. I appreciate your time and your energy and talking with us about banned books. I have to have you back on the show to talk about something fun but you're the best thank you so 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 much
2: I will come chat with you literally anytime about anything and not just because you pronounce my name correctly but also because (laughs) I love all the work you're doing and I do feel that we are aligned so I appreciate you we
0: are and everyone else we will see you in the stacks Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to today's guests for joining me. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts and join The Stacks Pack on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Stacks. Remember that The Stacks book club pick for February is I Live a Life Like Yours by Jan Gru. And we will be discussing the book on the podcast on Wednesday, February 23rd with Tessa Miller. I want to say a huge, huge thank you to Kiese Lehman, Sam Pinkleton, Andrew Russell, Kree Miles, Joseph Papa, Taryn Roeder, and Jackson Musker for helping me make this week possible. I also want to say an even bigger thank you to our editor, Christian Duenas, for working quadruple time to make this week possible. Everything you heard in today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at the Pod on Instagram and at thestackspod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me,
2: Tracy Thomas.